Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing... Present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 44 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I had so much fun chatting with my friend Jordan Gelzinski, an Egyptology PhD candidate and the co-host of Afterlives podcast. Jordan and I met at a small gathering out in L.A. last year. We immediately hit it off thanks to our shared love of the ancient world, but also thanks to our shared love of games and cats. In today's episode, Jordan talks about examining ancient Egyptian fashion as a dissertation topic, whether having a famous academic advisor is more of an advantage or challenge, and what a Sims game set in ancient Egypt would look like. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time is. I don't know. I made We're on opposite head. sides of the globe. That's right. Oh, oh that's right. You're now like, I'm 10 oh, hours no. ahead of you. I'm 10 yeah. hours ahead of you. I'm in the future. Do you yeah, want to know what the like future is like? like lunchtime here. Yes. What happens? Am I rich? <laughs> you uh, win the lottery. I can tell you exactly what numbers are going to come up. You know, just run to the store, make sure you like match them up and then you will win yourself <laughs> all the money in the world and you can support yourself in your research. It's fantastic. No, I, wish I had that power, but I don't. But anyway, I'm really, really excited because I want to jump right in and ask you how on earth did you get into Egyptology? Was it like uh, this like informal process or were you just that nerd who was like, yeah, this is it? I was that nerd. I mean, I have like distinct memories. One playing, I don't know if you've ever played it, but the Pharaoh Cleopatra city builder game from like 1999. Yeah, I was obsessed with those city builders. Like they had Caesar and like Poseidon Zeus too. I was obsessed with those. And then the other distinct memory I have is going to the library when I was like in fourth grade, the new books out like up on top of the shelf. And one of them was like an Egypt one about the pyramids or something like this. And I just grabbed it and just obsessed. And honestly, also like the mummy movie, like all these things were happening, like, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, right. When I was 
starting to be cognizant of things. And I was just always really into history. I'm from southeastern Pennsylvania, so there's just a lot of history from, you know, the Revolutionary War and houses in my hometown being from 1700s, 1600s, and having this history around me. The Brandywine Battlefield is like, I'm at my house. In school, always history being, you know, a hot topic and present. And then I always just like all the ancient, super ancient history. And and my parents, I think, encouraged it. They weren't like, that's stupid. Like, what are you going to do with that? And so they always encouraged me and my brother to pursue career fields that we find enjoyable and are interested in them. And I just never grew out of it. I think I never was like, ah, I should probably get a normal, quote unquote, normal job and and now I always am like, maybe I should get a quote unquote normal job. Uh, those are uh, wonderful, wonderful questions that you only encounter when it's kind of like too late, turn back, I guess. Yep. You're like, I'm too far deep. I'm too far in now. So, you know, I'm too deep. So here we like, are. <laughs> so how many years are you into your PhD program now? I'm in my sixth year. So I'm in full dissertating writing and I'm currently applying to fellowships uh, for dissertation year. So for not this academic year, but the following academic year funding to let me finish so I don't have to teach and do other stuff. So scary to kind of put an end date on things. And then, cause for all of my life, it's been just schooling after schooling after schooling. And then to be like, I'm, I'm done question mark, you know? Yeah, that must be weird. You know, I think everyone I talk to who is kind of in that like mode of, oh, you know, maybe I, I think I'd like to go do a PhD or yeah, you know, I might apply for next year. And then you think about it and then you're like, but do I want to? Because that's like six to eight years. Mm -hmm. So like I'm so used to people kind of the beginning side looking in and being like, wow, that's a lot of time to devote. I don't get to speak to a lot of people who are like, I'm almost done. Oh, no. What do yeah. I do? Last week I had a kind of little ah moment being like, I'm applying for these. And then that means 2023, I'm done. And then obviously all the stuff that comes after that jobs and all that horror, but just being like, I'm done taking classes and schoolwork and being in the, that kind of mode is a little scary. Cause it's, you know, my comfort place in a way it's, I've always been attracted to it, I think so academic types, man. We just, we really like taking classes. I don't know. Cause I know so many people who are not, you know, into the whole academia thing. So they could not imagine anything just yeah. more mm -hmm. I don't know, grueling for them than to just like sit through perpetually what seems like more and more school. Cause they're, yeah, they're like, why would you do that to yourself? Yeah. They're just like, come on. I learned the stuff. Now I want to like go out in the world, earn money and use it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just really funny to hear when I get to talk, I to have the opposite nerds. fear. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I'm like, Oh, my people, my other weird nerds who, if I could be a perpetual student for the rest of my life, I'd mm -hmm. like to just sit in classes and learn. And I don't know, it's, it sounds really bad when I say it, but I'm just like, can I not be a contributing member to society? And like, you, doing that is contributing. Like, I'm contributing, but I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess I in the know. way the giving back is teaching other people. Yeah. Yeah. And instilling that love of learning yeah. to a new generation. 
Yeah. Um, while also getting making, making more of us. <laughs> and then you still get to learn yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Just anything to keep you in the, in the place where you can learn, but also contribute. Well, contribute your brain. I guess I should say, mm-hmm. I should clarify. I've done the whole work outside of academia school stuff for a little while where, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sort of contributing my skills ostensibly. Politics is weird. Don't go into politics. If you're listening, don't do it. Don't I couldn't it. imagine studying something like so now because the things I do happened like 3,000 years ago so it's like to study something so current and that like could change tomorrow and I mean it sounds kind of fun too because it's but in a way set in stone yeah I was like you know in in a way it's nice I'm at the point in my master's program at least where we're still doing a lot of the like background review stuff Mm -hmm. like today in fact my lecture a couple hours ago was all about the disintegration of Yugoslavia And so we were basically learning the 80s, 90s, and it seems very recent because my professor's just kind of sitting there like, oh, I remember when we first started our program is right after like the whole like Yugoslavia disintegrated. So we were sitting here like 1999 talking about events and he's like, we're still talking about it. Yeah. You know, and I was like, oh, wow, that really hits because I'm so used to, oh, well, back in, you know. The fifth century. (laughs) Right. You know, you're just like, oh, okay. Very relevant. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's good because it's still not super current. We're moving into the current stuff. So I don't know how it's going to be because I've never really done current events. But I think it's really nice because it it does give you a background if you've done the ancient stuff that it really helps you kind of look at things in terms of long-term effects and Mm -hmm. um, just kind of like putting history. So historical perspective is like really helpful. It definitely puts things into perspective too, because it's like we study when you're doing your dissertation, you end up, you know, focusing down to something small, but I'm still, I'm still doing the new kingdom, which is still hundreds of years. (laughs) It's like more than the United States has existed and you're trying to distill something or you study it as if it's, you know, totally like, oh, yeah, I can study hundreds of years of history. No problem. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that you kind of already answered the next question, which was, you know, were you yeah. supportive? Yes. Since they were, I'm going to skip right on to. So how did you choose your sort of area of interest? Because I know that a lot of people, when they think of studying Egyptian history in Egypt, they go for like the really big general topics. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, you know, when you get to the PhD level or any sort of level in higher education, you have to pick. But a lot of people that I've spoken to or that I know of, they don't really know how that process works. They're kind of just like, yeah, Mm -hmm. can you just go study like all of Egyptian mummification, not just like one thing? So initially in undergrad, maybe I'll start there. I was a classics major and I think having listened to your show that everyone starts as classics majors because that's what's offered at most universities. If you want to do ancient studies, most have a classics program. And then classics, I feel like is it gets its bad rap, especially recently for good reason. But I think it's also a good for the rest of us. We've often used it as a jumping off point to other ancient studies fields of related areas. And so I started out as a classics major, but I was always really into archaeology and material culture. So I was able to double major in both because I was never really into like the translating the language and the reading of the literature. That was not my, not my shtick. I wanted the like objects that the people touched and lived with. And I wanted to know what it was like to live back then and to be those people, which obviously the language does give you, but I wanted to take a different angle. 
So then when you're applying for master's programs, I wanted to focus. Egypt was always still in the back of my head as my main love and applied to master's programs that focused in Egyptology. And then, as you know, you have to write a master's thesis. I had some ideas. A lot of them didn't work out. Couldn't really find a good topic. And I ended up, my MA advisor, uh, Nadine Moeller, formerly of UChicago, but now at Yale, she was like, why don't you go walk around the museum with Emily Teeter, who knows the collection, like the back of her hand, and maybe you'll see something that will spark your interest and just chat with her and see, you know, what happens. So we're walking around the OI, the Oriental Institute, and there's these little square painted linen fragments that show devotional scenes, offering scenes to Hathor. I think she's typically the goddess of, you know, music, love, dance. Essentially, she's her name, Hutor. She's the mother of the king. So she has this nurturing, protective role over the king. So I was, I think, always interested in the female goddesses of ancient Egypt too. And these linen, devotional, they're usually termed like votive offerings. So things that would have been given to her at a temple. Super weird, have never seen anything like them on painted linen. You know, usually it's stone or wood maybe. And Emily Teeter was like, yeah, so we have two of these that have never been published. And there's a really small corpus. There's only about 30 of them in existence across the globe. No one's kind of looked at them holistically, put these two that we have into the corpus, studied them and all this kind of stuff. So I just got initially really fascinated with those, wrote my master's thesis on those two, incorporating them into the corpus, you know, looking at the iconography, you know, what, when they date to things like this. And then, so that got me more interested in just linen and fabrics in general. So then coming into my PhD research, when I was at my master's as well, there was a postdoc there, Alexandra Holman, who was working on dress and identity in the late period. And I was able to get coffee with her and we chatted and situationally, the context was just right for me and, you know, things, the stars aligned and that kind of led me down the path I'm on now where I wanted to, you know, look at dress and identity in various ways. And I was always really interested in linen, linen production, again, the like archaeological materials themselves, but also the art. So also on the display side too. So it was how do we meld these two together? So then coming into my PhD, obviously you're like, okay, you come in with a broad topic. I'm interested in textiles and art and these types of things. And after taking classes for years and meeting with your advisors and all this kind of stuff, I ended up settling on my topic now, which looks at the depiction of dress in New Kingdom tomb scenes. So again, you're each, each one of these is like you're focusing down to a specific type of thing. So depiction of dress in elite New Kingdom tomb scenes. Well, I can preface this, which I think I might be extending out now into the late third intermediate period, but this is how dissertations go. Like you propose an idea and then as you're working on things, you're like, oh, I'm going to go down these directions. But essentially looking at how dress can be used, the display of dress can be used to show one's identity. And, you know, these tomb scenes are idealized, right? We can't say, oh, this is how they actually looked in real life, or this is always what dress was like, but that this is the idealized way the tomb owner wanted to be, you know, immortalized on his tomb wall. And 
you know, the show of the elite kind of competition going on in the court, and then to what degree these changes reflect the larger social context of the time, changes to foreign interaction. Do we get new trends coming in influenced by trade with the Levant, for example, or Egypt? We have like Aegean motifs showing up and people never know how to really interpret if this was real or not. I'm trying to, in the dissertation, establish dress norms. So what was kind of the normal dress for a period? And then looking at when you see deviations from these norms and attempting to argue that there was a fashion in the past, which is debated, that you can't say that there was fashion in the past because it's a modern concept with like haute couture in France and all these types of things, but that it's actually, I'm viewing it as fashion just being changes to the norm reflective of the larger sociocultural context. So I'm working on. But to get to that, it was a lot of talking with your advisors, getting people on my committee. As you know, Kara Cooney, my advisor, she does a lot of art and material culture and identity studies, but she doesn't work on textiles. So one of my committee members I wanted to have on my committee who does more dress related stuff, but she works in uh, seriology. It's like I have a pulling from different methodologies and stuff like that. I think that's really cool. And I think it sounds super interesting and definitely one of the more unique ones that I've had the pleasure of hearing about. Well, and I think, so one of the things I've struggled with, and I think I want to push back against is that textile studies and dress studies have, especially within like academic scholarship, typically is something it's looked down upon as something not worthy of study because, oh, it's dress, it's women's work. And so it's not something of male scholarly. If you look at anyone who's written on textiles, it's mostly women. Back in early 1900s, it was given to women like, oh, you can you can work on this because like, you know, clothes and stuff. And so most people view it as something like mundane and not, not worthy of, you know, scholarly study. But we today know clothing says so much about you as a person. And there's like such integrated little tiny, you know, identities within your dress. You can change your identity by changing your clothes. We think about what we want to appear to someone by what we're wearing. You know when someone's doing something off, right? Like someone can be wearing a really fancy expensive suit, but if it's not cut right or doesn't fit well, you're like, something's up. And my argument is that ancient Egyptians would have done the same thing. And so I'm pushing back against this idea that clothing and dress and fashion and textiles is something that's mundane and not worthy of study and if people study food food tells you just as much about someone as their dress you know about their identity and things like this but food is okay to study because men study it but textiles boring and blah or like not worthy of study because it's typically associated with women who weren't typically in the past in the academic you know sphere that's the perception of studying textiles. Did you have to work really hard to convince your advisors that this was worth their time? Or did they kind of go, oh, you're right. This is something that's been understudied. Do it, do it, do it. Yeah, it was more that, you know, you explained it to them and they were like, do it, do it, do it. But I also think 
of my advisors are women. They're not maybe going to have that prejudice that maybe an older male would, but even professors in my department, male or female, or they all know what I study and everyone, I think now textile studies is way more accepted, right? People come at it from totally different angles, but I still think that certain angles are more accepted than others. Like if you take a more economic or production angle to textile production or consumption, then it's more academic and scholarly. Where if you're looking at it for art or um, identity or display, still I think has some people who would look down, I think, at it. This got me thinking a little bit, and not too long ago, I spoke with your wonderful colleague, Dr. Marissa Stevens. Shout out to her. Mm -hmm. And if you have not listened to her episode, I highly recommend you do. It is excellent. But anyway, so yes, I spoke to her a little bit about the process of, you know, how one goes about finding your advisors, because it's such a monumental decision for any young person who wants to do a PhD, because it can really sort of make or break your experience. She also had Dr. Kara Cooney. And if you have not listened <laughs> to her episode, this is your plug. You should listen to her episode as well. Anyway, you both have had Kara as your advisor. I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked her, which was, did you find it initially difficult just because Kara already is a well-known name within the field. She has this persona. Did you find the process of sort of making the right decision difficult at any point? Or we heard a little bit about how she's very good about separating her sort of media mm -hmm. public persona yeah. from her professional one. But I think a question that a lot of people would want to know if they're thinking about working with someone who's quite well known in the field, it's one thing to hear, oh, yeah, yeah, they're good about keeping it, you know, separate. But like, you know, what, what was the experience like for you? I think I had known of her. So and I had watched her on TV and I'd read her books and all this stuff. So when I was applying to PhD programs as her as my advisor, initially, you know, in, very intimidating because you're like, you have all these ideas in her head, in your head about her that maybe you don't have about another professor who's not as maybe widely known. My first real interaction with her, not over email or something like this, was I was I think preliminarily accepted type of thing. And she was like, let's get on a phone call and chit chat. We got on the phone. She called me from her car. Anyone who knows Kara, she's very unabashedly herself always. And so it was, you know, she was running late to something on the phone call, her kid, she was picking up her kid from school. And, you know, it was just, this is who I am. And I'm not like trying to fake it and, and be this, you know, very perfect professor and have this persona. And I initially was just attracted to that, that she was very just open and instantly like made me laugh and feel comfortable. And it wasn't an awkward conversation or didn't feel like I was like, we were pulling teeth to chit chat and we had a good connection and I told her about the ideas I was interested in the topics I was interested in working on. And she has similar, you know, works on similar things. That's where we kind of connected. And then I think then the next step is obviously once you're in the program and taking courses with her, I was just always still very, I still am to a degree, to be totally honest, I'm intimidated by her. She's a, a force, you know, so you want to make your advisors proud and make them proud of you, just like your parents do good things and stuff for them. She was always really good about in class and stuff about keeping things. She's not faking anything, even in her more public stuff, it's, it's Kara and that's just who she is. And so there's, there's no actually real, in a way, she's not like switching personas or personalities because both sides are 
her. And so you're getting that there. So I've got to know her over the years and stuff like this. It's she hasn't like all of a sudden, like after knowing her, she's a different person or something like this. It's she's that same person from the get go. So I think that helps a lot. And I always call her like mama bear. Like she, she is very um, nurturing, I think, to all of us grad students. And we all feel very safe with her. And I always found that she is very, you know, understanding and you can always go to her with something and she'll try to help you out. And some people have really negative experiences with their advisors of stealing their work or not being understanding or, you know, doing things like malicious things against them. And all of us here, I think, have never obviously had that experience. And it is difficult kind of coming in with a preconceived idea of her from her like earlier stuff and, you know, watching Out of Egypt on what Discovery Channel when I was in fourth grade. But as soon as you get with her, which I'm sure you've experienced too, it's like, this is just who she is. Yeah. You know, a lot of what you're saying definitely is kind of how I felt because I was to be quite frank as well, terrified of talking to her, even for the podcast. And yeah. first moment I popped on, I think right beforehand, my, my friend had to give me a little pop, like pep talk. And she was just like, she's just a human. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Relax. Mm-hmm. And then she popped on there and was just so chill about everything. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, she like is really good at easing your fears yeah. and yeah. Cause she just talks to you like a normal person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you're like, oh, okay. This isn't so bad at all. Like Cool. But I'm really glad now from a second person to hear that it's, you know, not intimidating to work with someone who has some sort of, you know, persona where it would be easy to to sort of just pose, you know, already how it's going to be like. She could have like a huge ego or something, right? And not be looking out for us. The other thing too, I will say is that she uses her popularity and stuff to benefit us. So things will come her way. We're in LA, so lots of TV, movie opportunities, looking for, you know, history consultants or things like this. And Kara obviously can't do all of them. Some of them she passes along to us. So we get all these opportunities because of her. She's good about spreading the wealth and using it for not just for herself. So I always appreciate that. Which is super awesome, but also now begs the question, this this interesting, fun conundrum of, I know that someone's reputation might cause people to shy away from wanting to go professionally work with them and study with them. Mm-hmm. And what you're presenting could also make a case for maybe why you should look to work with someone, if it works out, of course, with a little bit of a profile because it might actually benefit you. So oh, yeah. that's kind of an interesting one to deal with. And as, as a young person considering going into a grad program, you know, should that be a consideration about sort of the profile of your potential advisor? Because it's like, yeah, on the one hand, it's great. But also on the other hand, it might not be so great because then, you know, what if they are so famous, they don't really have that much time for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's all very personal choice. And I think what's most important is just how you get along with that advisor, how you guys like mesh. That's the most important thing is that you talk to them beforehand and you have a inkling, obviously you you don't know them that much, but you have an inkling that you, you can have a good relationship and communicate well together and things like this. The second question then is, you know, what you want from your career? Are you maybe have similar goals in mind where you want to do a lot of public outreach and get involved in those types of things, then maybe, yeah, it'd be probably really helpful to have an advisor who also is engaged in those types of activities as a mentor. 
maybe if you're want nothing to do with the public and don't want to be involved in those things, Karen never like forces us to be a history consultant on a TV show. It's always, you know, here's an opportunity. If someone wants to take it, like it's here for you. Given that, you know, doing ancient studies, I think the onus is on us to always be involved in public outreach. You can't just do, you can't be in an ivory tower and just be like translating cuneiform for no one's benefit. We have to be engaging with the public and making things legible and open and making things relevant. Like, why are we studying this if not for making it available to the public and reaching out and teaching others and just spreading the, the knowledge we have. So I think it's both those two things. But I would say when you know you're looking for an advisor, the most important thing is that you, one, think they can mentor you on your project you're hoping to, to start, that you know they have the skills to mentor you in that specific field. And then two, that you have a good relationship with them and that you, you, know, you can communicate and you feel comfortable with them and all those types of things. For sure. I would definitely echo everything because yeah. I obviously agree. You mentioned that, you know, being in LA, you do get a lot of unique opportunities that not a lot of other people would get just by the basis of, I mean, you are kind of in like, you know, Hollywood where the <laughs> town where it happens, as it were. So since you are kind of in this place that's so unlike anywhere else and you probably I'm assuming see maybe you're not you know like in Hollywood you're not in the industry obviously you're sort of peripherally mm -hmm. there but you probably would see more opportunity than other places and has this unique opportunity of being able to live and study and be in LA sort of impacted what you see as options outside of academia Maybe could you talk a little bit about like, well, if someone was like, yeah, I want to get a PhD and blah, 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 but I don't want to go into academia, even from just being kind of in a place where more is happening than for most people goes on all year. What are some oh, yeah. of the things that someone who maybe just got their PhD could do? I have like two roads I can take on this, but first I'll address the kind of the industry of Hollywood. Whenever a movie, TV show is in development and if it's historically based they always hire history consultants to advise on these things and I've been involved in projects that where you know they're writing scripts and they need you to pull you know like set decks and cre help create you know world building and pull photos and and they want these things to be historically accurate they don't want them to be totally off the walls I've been involved in a couple of projects. I'm under NDA, so I cannot say for who or things, but it's been really fun for me to be involved in that and be on set. And for my textiles work, like be involved in pulling the costumes and working with costume designers and in recreating what the costumes would have looked like and stuff. And so that's just interesting for my own research, just to see things reconstructed and how things would have moved and all this kind of stuff. But then to know that, okay, if the show gets picked up or made, you know, full, that it was made with accuracy in mind. And then again, to public outreach that these things are then historically accurate. Given that, I don't really know of anyone who just does like history consulting. I'm sure there are probably some firms that might focus in it and they have different people who can address. But I think in most cases, they email Kara because she's a big name and they know of her. And then sometimes we work as a group, as a team to help consult for these things. I've had colleagues who've consulted for History Channel or Nat Geo and such. And I'm assuming that probably those companies internally have 
consultants that are like full-time employees. So you definitely could have that be your alt academic route. I don't know of anyone who has pursued that, but it's not saying that it's not an option. It'd be pretty cool, actually. Uh, and I think with all the different streaming services out there today, it, I feel like rife for that kind of company to be developed to offer those services. Because I don't, to my knowledge, one doesn't really exist. It's all kind of ad hoc. But on the same alt act conversation, I also work at the Getty. So the Getty Museum, the Getty Villa, and the GRI Research Institute. I started there as a research assistant at the Getty Villa, working with, so each year they have scholars come in. And so the Villa side, they're focusing on ancient stuff. And so I was their research assistant, you know, helping them do research, scan books for them, copy edit stuff, all that. Over the pandemic, that part, that program was halted. So I was moved to a different office, which was in like development and communications, which I was like, I don't know anything about development or communications. This is crazy. Like, I just know how to do research and ancient stuff. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be of help. But then I thought about it a bit and I was like, oh, this is a really good opportunity to get some other skills if academia doesn't work out or I don't pursue it, that I have these other skills that are allow me to be in a position that's related to academia, right? The Getty and the GRI are all still, you know, art focused, scholarly focused, but that I'm just coming at it from a different angle. And so I really enjoyed working in the office that I do now, and I mainly write grants. And so that's what we do in academia too. So it's internal grants, external grants, that's development. These skills you're gaining, research, project management, it's a lot of working with colleagues and writing. So it's all the skills you develop in a master's or a PhD program that I think if you just frame them in the right way, you could go into any career field really and make those skills totally applicable. If you say, oh, I have a degree in Egyptology, people aren't going to really know what that means unless they've been through a similar program. But if you say I have skills in grant writing and project management and the framing, I think is important. Yeah, it'd be really cool to be just like a Hollywood history consultant. <laughs> that would be the ideal, I think. I would enjoy that. I think doing that full time would be awesome. I'm a big gamer, so I'm a very yes, big proponent for... Yes, I'm a huge proponent for like getting historians involved in the game making process as well. I'm, uh, I'm almost yes. like a little sad that you weren't coming up and the timing didn't work out because I'm like, oh, I wish you could have worked on like Assassin's Creed Origins or something, you know. So they actually came to UCLA after it was released and they were working on the educational DLC. And so they had us tested. They like came to our seminar room, set up like all of these stations and we were sitting there playing and they were asking us like if stuff was right and we had like a little day with Ubisoft so that was really fun which was awesome because I was just like I played this game already at home completely <laughs> I was like I didn't already play this whole game not me no 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 but, yeah <laughs> I do, oh, I do wow. love those games and they're really focused on being historically accurate and integrating, you know, educational materials and all that stuff, which I love. That's so cool. And again, yeah. I feel like, you know, I feel like this is happening more and more, but I did also speak with Perrine Poiron, the main Egyptologist, one of the main nice. ones for the discovery tour. And so her episode yes. is out. And so you should also listen to that episode. But I thought it was just like the most revolutionary thing to come out in its mm -hmm. time when it did come out in 2017. And then, of course, I thought the same thing about Odyssey when it came out, you know, yeah. like a year later. I've been playing that one actually recently. 
Really? Because I never finished it. And I was like, I need to like make more progress. So yeah. obviously we have so many gamer academics, which we need to talk about that more. I swear, like all the academics don't want to like admit that they're gamers. And I'm like, why? Well, I feel like to me, one, just like an escape, right? Academia is, you know, you're reading and it's, you're sitting at your desk and by playing game, you can escape into this world. But for me, it's seeing something that in my head, I visualized into, you know, a game, like what it would have been like to run around the pyramids or my favorite part of, of Origins was the DLC for Thebes, when you can go into, you know, like the underworld and all the bars flying around with human heads. And I just thought that was so fun and an interesting way of just visualizing things that you read about. And, you know, we have art and stuff, but just like having it, you know, three-dimensionally. I'm just kind of bitballing here. If you do end up with a teaching position because you discover, hey, I'd like to teach. Could you imagine yourself using origins or similar games in your classroom to teach a couple of my colleagues were like how do I want to integrate this into the classroom but it's like I'd have to like lug my PlayStation or Xbox to class or what my one friend was doing was she was recording herself doing like a screen record as she played and then would bring it to the classroom to show the students the students have played the game a lot of them so I think it's a really good way of just interacting with the students and getting them more interested and and showing them like video games have a place and what you're learning about when you're playing is pretty accurate so yeah I would I think that'd be really fun especially the discovery tours and things like that super useful but also you know you could talk about the reception of ancient Egypt in modern times through video games and these are all you know really interesting topics you could have a whole class on just reception of the ancient world in video games and each of the students could pick a video game to write a research paper about and you know look at in depth and that sounds super cool to me using the same software or technology for academic purposes too you know like making 3d reconstructions of things and all that i would totally go to a class that used games or, you know, I think that'd be like the happiest paper. Oh yeah. That'd be like the best paper mm -hmm. I ever, you know, would write. Oh, so I can pick any video game really. And then write my own thing. Oh, sure. Great. Yeah. I'll do it. Yeah, sticking with our, with our media theme here, then I guess if you could create or design, you know, any kind of media project to show accurately ancient Egyptian culture, history, whatever it is that you may want, what, what would you do and how would you do it? Yeah, honestly, and maybe this is selfish, but I really want someone to redo the Pharaoh city builder and make the city builder games more complex and reflective of how a city actually functions. It's not like, oh, if I put the well near these people, then make it a little bit more complex. But I would really love to see those games redid. And I think those, I, I think I would focus in on those and you know, Assassin's Creed did the kind of more three-dimensional point of view type perspective. I mean, you could always say I want more of Assassin's Creed type things. Honestly, also Assassin's Creed, if we could go further back in time of Egypt and not do like the Roman period would also be really cool. My biggest complaint, the time period. Yeah. Yeah. I like ancient Egypt, but I'm like, which I oh. get like you need the like enemy obviously has to be Rome. So it's like, I get it. But yeah, I just have always really loved those city builder games and like civilization. So like maybe something integrating those together. And Total War, I also really like Total War. These kind of top, you know, above you type games, something like that. 
I'm picturing it now as you're talking about these older games because I did play Pharaoh as well and I thought the graphics yeah. were lacking. But then again, it was made, you know, when like graphics were like not great. No, <laughs> I, I can see it now though. I want a like Sims version of ancient Egypt. Yeah, that the, actually be really fun. Right? Like, like, like you're the Pharaoh. Yeah, because you court. have to then do all the actions that like you would make your Sims do, because you know, but like go to the temple and perform the rituals, and then like avoid yeah. assassination and go to war. Yeah, but like even to the mundane, like oh, like you know, you buy a bunch of like fancy beds and shit, and then it's like choose your headrest. You know, like in the, uh-huh. I'm th- I'm seeing the like the Sims store the styling. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and then, and then since you're doing clothing, I was like, so then can we have you be the consultant and then build the Sims to Egyptian wardrobe? Can, can you do that? Like, are yes, you qualified yes. to do that? Yes. So I'm thinking like, what, like Animal Crossing, Ancient Egypt <laughs> edition. Basically, basically. <laughs> No, imagine how much of an opportunity that would be. Like they put so that much detail so, into yeah. Sims wardrobes and designing your own Sims. So I'm like, imagine mm-hmm. if they did that, but then got like someone to actually consult on the real clothes and yeah. then you digitize them mm-hmm. for like a Sims version. That's a real opportunity. No. You could like teach people about Egyptian clothing and like hairstyles. Yep. Well, so and- that was this project I was involved on. It was doing something similar where they were taking, you know, they wanted to see what it looked like in reality, but they were trying to translate then that into an animation type thing. So we were, you know, working on live models and then seeing movement and all this kind of stuff to then translate it into an animated thing but yeah I also love the sims so I'd be very happy with ancient sims too <laughs> that sounds great I'm, I'm just gonna say you know I really went to town on like house builder mode and when I was yes. younger oh me too like, right no legitimate people were like no playing's the best mm-hmm. part and I'm like no it is it's building your no, own freaking it's house. The house mode <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Cause let me tell you, I also being that young kid obsessed with everything Egypt would build like these palatial things that looked like giant house pyramids because I just, and then I'd give them like stupid names and all of my neighborhoods <laughs> would have like a different Egyptian city name and the families would be like, I love it. House of Khufu, you know, just like, like really yeah, yeah. nerd. I love that, it. That That's was great. me as a child. That's Let's make awesome. this happen. Let's contact what EA owns them, owns them. Uh-huh. Let's contact EA and be like, hey, we have an idea. Yeah. And employ some ancient you know, world sims. Exactly. And then you could hire people but basically think- from like all of their periods because based on like what mm-hmm. clothes and what sims you want to put in, you know, some ancient Greek mm-hmm. ones, some Roman ones. Mesopotamia, China, yeah. Aztec would be cool. Yeah, well, you know, this is your pitch to them. It's your job interview, basically. I think they'll like everything that you've yeah. said so far. I think they'll be like, great, she's hired. She'll do all the clothes for us. Yeah, exactly. I'll pull all the set decks. I'll build your worlds. We're good. Yeah, what more could I'd they like, want? I, what more could you want? I won't want? write the code. Don't know how to do that, though. <laughs> well, we have to have our STEMI science nerds, I suppose. You just work with yes. them and, you know, tell them exactly. I want this and it needs to look this way. You code it. When I feel like that's the crossover is everyone always loves the ancient world, regardless if you're more humanities, arts focused or STEM science focused. I feel like the ancient world is the ever interesting topic for everyone. Yeah. Grab them that way. 
Oh, okay. Well, I like this idea so much. You mentioned that you love Present the past. mummy movie. Yes. That's kind of a requirement, I feel like, for most Egyptologists. It is. Let's, let's be real. Someone just sent me a meme the other day of, you know, all the characters of the mummy and being like, like, how can you pick just one of these characters, blah, 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 and their attractiveness and all this stuff. And I was like, I feel like all the Egyptologists just, we all love the mummy movie. It's a ritual. Like we all have to love it. Those of us who grew up loving everything Egypt. I mean, I'd love it, but okay. So I'm going to ask you excluding the mummy because now you can't use the mummy. Okay. Is there a certain either television show or movie production, play, musical, whatever okay. that portrays Egypt really well and pretty accurately that you think is just like awesome. Oh, that's so good. I'm like scouring my brain. Initial thought, first always think of books, but then I'm relying upon my own imagination to create these things. That's hard. My second thought is things that do it really, really badly. I think Rome, the HBO TV show would have to be my like second pick. It takes place mostly in Rome, but Egypt's involved at the end. And I just love that whole TV show in general. And I think they do a really good job of portraying the ancient world and, and things. Again, not sure how accurate Egypt, they made everyone kind of garish and a little funky, but maybe the Ptolemies, hey, you know, they were the Ptolemies. So maybe they were a little, there's lots of brother-sister marriages. And a lot on. of death, a lot of And a lot of murdering and a lot of, yeah, exactly. A family that funky, you know what? I would not put anything past them. I'm trying to like go through my head of what other, this kid's TV show that was, it's a British kid's TV show that's called like Roman Mysteries. Mm. And it was like really low production but it was still the author of the books was a classicist. And so when the books became into a kid's TV show, it was always still really accurate. And there's a bunch of the episodes take place when they're in Egypt and, and stuff like that. So that's always a fun one for kids. Um, okay. That question is intentionally hard because- What's yours? Oh, I'm glad you asked. The Prince of Egypt, actually. <laughs> oh my God, you're right. I totally forgot about that. Yes, 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 yes. That's a good one. I usually think of that a question I get asked a lot, just like mm -hmm. when people know I'm a classicist is the first thing they go is, oh, oh, if you're a classicist and you study that. So what is like a good movie or TV show or media thing that I can go see and have it be mm -hmm. you know, decently accurate and put me on the right path so it's not just completely terrible. And so usually I'm always yeah. like, oh, OK, well, it's a lot easier with classics things because there's so much more done. So I thought, you know. I, I want to learn more about what Egyptologists themselves think about, you know, what was a really good representation of Egypt that you could easily recommend to someone if they want to get more into Egypt. You know, there's so many bad things that come out. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm like, no, I want to know what you think is good. Yeah. All it's saying to me is that there's a lot of space for something good to come out. Yeah. Uh, Prince of Egypt. Definitely. That's definitely a good one. Yeah. Although now I'm going to actually give you the more fun one, which is out of all the representations of Egypt, which one did you think was the worst? I have so many. Where do I begin? The Gods of Egypt movie with the guy from Game of Thrones. That was really awful. The Ridley Scott Moses one was really, really awful. The recent mummy with Tom Cruise was really awful. It's really easy to conjure up terrible ones. <laughs> Yes. That's why I was like, I can think of all like the really, really, really bad ones. I think Cleopatra, the, the classic Cleopatra doesn't really portray it accurately, but it's still like a good movie for what it was at the time. And so I think you can still watch it 
and have a value, but I wouldn't say it was accurate. Do I like it's like portrayal of Cleopatra? Like, no, but it's Liz Taylor and it's, you know, like a Hollywood classic film. It depends on how you're weighing those. And the sets were so, you know, like big and grandiose and stuff. So it was cool. Like how they did it that way just wasn't maybe the most accurate. No, you're right. Because I do actually love the Liz Taylor Cleopatra, not because Mm -hmm. it's accurate, but just because it's entertaining is all hell. And, you know, my favorite scene is like when they bring her into Rome and then they like carry her on that platform. And then you can clearly see it's like a modern thing where like the platform goes down and her chair stays like level. So you're like, oh yeah, just some screws, you know, keeps it level. They, just, uh, they had gears and bolts and yeah, <laughs> hydraulics. So, oh yeah. So I'm just like, mm-hmm, yeah, that's super accurate. So that's entertaining in its own right, you know, is just silly mm-hmm. things that get put into movies. Well, you know, it's funny because yeah, the Gods of Egypt movie where they turn into humanoid metal monsters, obviously not at all anything resembling accurate. Yeah. But I would, for me, those go into the category of the like, so bad, it's actually good. It's like laughable. I thought of another good one, actually. I think it's on Netflix, but I don't know who originally produced it, but it's like Howard Carter, Discovery of King Tut, dramatized. And they throw in some like romance with, Lord Carnarvon's daughter, which is not obviously accurate, but overall it's a fun watch and everything else is pretty accurate. It's on Netflix. Oh. The bad one was that King Tut and with like oh, Ben yeah. Kingsley or whatever. And I remember my mom calling yeah. me after every week's episode and being like, so did like this happen and blah, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, no, like, no, mom. Uh, oh my gosh. I was trying so hard not to ask, but now I'm just really curious. Do you have a favorite book about ancient Egypt? Yes. One of my favorite book series is the Amelia Peabody series, which is about archaeologists in the late 18, early 1900s who go dig in Egypt. And it was written by an Egyptologist, Elizabeth Peters from ZU Chicago, finished her PhD, doctor and all that, but just didn't want to pursue academic career. And so she took up, it's like murder mysteries, half murder mysteries, half archaeological excavations in the golden age. And I love those books. There's also another series I read. It was You Were Sen and Moot, and he was the detective in like Hatshepsut's court. And there was all these like murders and he had to like solve. Those were fun too. I just also, you can clearly tell I love true crime. So I'm always going for the murder mystery. Wait, oh my gosh. If you like murder mysteries, did you read The Murder of King Tut by James Patterson? It always comes up on like my suggested, what is this? Is it dramatized or is it like factual? It's dramatized in the parts definitely that he's writing in ancient times. It's kind of Mm -hmm. split between kind of like an ancient and then there's some like modern chapters. I will say... I read it because I got it as a gift a billion years ago for my birthday. I love it because I'm not sure if this is accurate because I'm not an Egyptologist, but I'm also like, this is so freaking entertaining. Hey, there's so many different theories even Egyptologists have about King Tut's death that have been proposed and made it as Nat Geo (laughs) documentaries. So (laughs) James Patterson is probably not far off the mark. If you like true crime, I'd say you probably would like it. I'll give it a read. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I think you do it. It always pops up and I'm always like, I like James Patterson. Why not throw a little tut in there? Let us know what you think of it because I'd love to follow up on that. My spooky October month. (laughs) Oh, you should. You totally should. No, it'd be, it fit, it would fit right in. I will quickly mention because try to plug this as often as I can. I don't get to very often. So that's why it's even more exciting. (laughs) My favorite novel of ancient Egypt is River God by Wilbur Smith. It is the single best thing I've ever read in my life. It's so good. I mean, is it accurate? No, but like it is the best book I've ever read in my life, hands down. So I've seen also that come up on my suggested reads. I will give that a go too. And I don't think, you know, I don't think we should be too concerned with being too wedded to accuracy because what is accuracy? I don't know. All of it's constructed with our modern lens anyways. If you can write an entertaining novel, then that's its own thing. Exactly. And if it gets you into Egypt, you know, it's all part of that Egyptomania thing that gets you in. And then one, once you're in the door, we can worry about setting you straight with historical accuracy. It's just we need to get you in the door to make you interested. Exactly. A hundred percent agree, which is why the mummy is great. <laughs> That's why anything Not really accurate. with mummies in Egypt is great, because if it gets you loving Egypt, I'm like, you know what? It could be the worst thing in the world. When I was little, even before I had my amazing fifth grade teacher, who's the one who really got me into Egypt. Mm-hmm. My mom, when I was in third or fourth grade, would used to go to the public library and bring back books she thought I'd enjoy reading. And she brought back the Magic Treehouse. What a throwback. Magic Treehouse yes. books. Yes. And there was the oh Egypt my God. one. I read all the ancient ones. Yes. Yeah. Oh. So she brought the Egypt one and then I read it. And you know, it's it's so these books are like so teeny. So you read mm-hmm. it in like a day and you're just like, oh. this is the best thing ever. I love this. So yeah, I read it and yeah. that was like beginning of a long love affair that I didn't pursue professionally, but who cares? I remember there was also this one, I think it's by Michelle Moran. That's like Nefertiti. That one's also a cool dramatization. When we were younger, the like diaries, it was like different like princesses from like different cultures and they like kept a diary and you could like read it. I remember there was like one for Cleopatra, like different ancient princesses that had a diary. Read all those. Everything I could get my hands on about ancient Egypt, anything I could get my hands on to read, to watch, to listen to. I I mean, just like complete nerd out where you knew I was gone. I was lost in this ancient world. I mean, my parents had no idea it was coming. It's so funny. I still, I still remember I came back, you know, from school and I was like, I'm going to be an Egyptologist one day, mom and dad. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. Sure. If you can figure it out have fun. I remember I was always between like Egyptology and wanting to be a vet, like take care of cats and dogs. And I remember my dad told me, oh, in vet school, like you're going to have to operate on dead animals and like dissect dead animals and all that stuff. And I was like, nope, I'm Egyptology. And then it's like, okay, Egyptology is like more dead stuff, but it's much older. So it's not as juicy at least. (laughs) That was my two options. So kind of just to wrap up the section on various forms of media, I've I've been really looking forward to getting to this part. You have the honor of being Kara's co-host on her new podcast, After Lives with Kara Cooney. Podcasts obviously are another great form of media where you can educate people. You know, did you ever see yourself as a podcaster? Did you consider, you know, maybe ever starting your own? Like, so how did you Mm kind of end up with this great gig? Because- 
I mean, one, it's just awesome to be able to podcast about the ancient world. And, you know, I didn't know how cool it was until I started doing it. And, you know, so glad I'm here. Don't want to stop ever. But two, I think a lot of people would have been like, hell yeah, can I podcast with like Kara Cooney or whatever? So like, how did this (laughs) opportunity come along? Like, tell us about this. Yes. It's like kind of crazy story, actually. So I never... I love podcasts, but I never viewed myself as a co-host or, you know, starting a podcast. I tend to be more shy, so I'm not one to maybe put myself out there, which as co-host, I'm happy in my co-host position, not as, you know, front front and center. Kara can can take all that. But it really came from, so we have a course here at UCLA called Women in Power that Kara developed a couple of years back and it's been running for years and it's totally asynchronous online. And one of the positions I had been serving as in was as head TA, coordinate all the other TAs. You know, it's a huge class, over 200 kids usually every quarter. So, you know, up to like 10 TAs sometimes coordinating with all the TAs. And one of the parts of the class was we would hold two live events with Professor Cooney throughout the quarter. And I was like MC for these events. So we would hold these on Zoom. And it turned out that most of the time, the students being undergrads, they're not the chattiest, they're all their Zoom screens are blank and blocked out. And so it just turned to the Kara Jordan hour where I just would ask her questions about things and we would chit chat back and forth. And the students would be like, this is great. Love listening to you guys just like talk. And we're just like, one day Kara was like, haha, like we should do a podcast. This is what we do. People seem to enjoy it and stuff. And I was like, okay, like let's do it or whatever. And it kind of got brought up a couple of times. And then I think we never proceeded with it. And then COVID hit and Kara was recording some videos on Facebook Live and on YouTube and was getting a lot of engagement with followers and things like this. And so she wanted to make them more consistent with when she was posting. And so having someone like me and her assistant, Amber, to kind of pull themes and, you know, set dates in the calendar for when we'll sit down and talk about things between those two things kind of combined to be like, okay. And then during COVID having slightly more free time, but just being, you know, sitting around and being like, okay, let's, let's do the podcast. This is a good time to start it up and start doing things. She has a new book coming out. Our first episodes we recorded, which surprisingly aren't the ones that have come out yet. So we've been recording and kind of going in reverse order. We're on her upcoming book. So those will be coming out next month. And so we started with that and then we've just been pulling topics and talking about stuff that interests us and I've had a really fun time with it and enjoyed it and I think she has too and we've been getting some good feedback so we're just taking it in stride and learning as we go because it's both our first time doing this and trying to get feedback and suggestions from more established podcasters like you and things like that so it's been fun yeah. And for those listening, by the time this episode drops, Kara's new book will have already dropped. The new book is The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt. So when Jordan said it's coming out next month, next month is actually to November 2nd, 2021. It should be on sale. The link to purchasing the book and the podcast will be in the show notes if you are so inclined to check one or both of them out, which I highly recommend you do. I think that the podcast has an awesome way to further do public outreach. And I'm also in the ancient world podcasting space, but obviously my show is not on just Egypt. But what I can say is 
I was noticing that there was kind of a gap in true Egyptology podcasts. I mean, there's the big one, History of Egypt, yeah. Dominic Perry. Yeah. But, you yes. know, as, a, as an Egypt lover, I was like, you know, there's not really a lot out there. And I kind of wish there was more. So I feel like your guys's podcast came out kind of at the perfect time when I was desperately like, all right, I'm looking for a new one. Come on, what other history ones can I find? And then it appeared. I yeah. could not be more happy to have you guys on the scene. And it, it brings me joy awesome. to, to know that more people want to do it because I think it's really fun. And if all goes well, will you want to do it for, I don't know, as long as you can do it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. Keep doing it. And I think, I don't know if you feel this way in academia, but I think there's a, a change on the horizon with what's counted as scholarship and, you know, what's given to students to read for, you know, recommended readings for syllabi and stuff. And I'm seeing more and more on, you know, academic Twitter that people are putting podcasts down to listen to because they're just, I spend so much time researching for an episode to pull questions and, pull primary sources and stuff it's not I'm just not pulling them out of the ether right I'm taking a lot of time to to research these topics Kara does her own research she obviously has you know her own background in the topics usually we're talking about so these things are super well researched and a lot of times I think students can everyone has different ways of learning and maybe reading something isn't the best way for everyone's Twitter threads. I love a good historical Twitter thread that like leads me through an argument. Love those. Think those should be unwound or whatever it's called on Twitter and given to students. Podcasts should be given to students, YouTube videos, all these types of things. And I think too, so for our course, Women in Power, one of the options the students can do for the final project is a podcast episode. That might have also been like in the back of our heads as we were talking about starting a podcast is that the students do it for their final project. And I absolutely love when the students do a podcast episode. They always add fun music, like they do like fake advertisements and it's fantastic. And they're always better. I think they have more fun. They don't have the restrictions of like writing a typical research paper, feeling like you have to write in a certain voice all the time. So I think more more history podcasts, the more the merrier. This just opens it up. I mean, one of the problems I think I imagine that all academics, but you know, I certainly do. And I, I know on your show so far, and I, I hope in the future, you will still continue to talk about how these ancient fields are really oftentimes unaccessible to people. And we don't make it easy to access the information or the people who have access to the information. And so just you mentioning that like you're seeing more podcast episodes assigned, is this part of the future bringing history to a more accessible level, you know, it, like an increase in assigning of podcasts and YouTube videos and stuff. Cause I know that some people still look down and just kind of waggle their finger and say, Oh, that's so unacademic. You can't just listen to a podcast. Like, no, no, no. You know, like what's that all about, man? I think amongst early career scholars and the younger scholars, I think that's the move we're trying to go towards. I mean, even for example, with you know, you see certain programs in the classics getting rid of their language requirements or, you know, having it be two different tracks. You can do the language heavy track or you can do the more material culture history track where it's like you shouldn't need to obviously knowing an ancient language is immensely helpful and can't just rely upon translations, but that's not the only way you can study ancient history. I think being just more open about the types of 
resources we make available to students too. And to me, it's lazy if you're just rehashing the same syllabus for years with the same readings because you're not even updating sometimes the scholarship on it. So it's see what's out there because the students are going to be Googling it anyway. So you might as well tell them what YouTube videos are good to watch and are accurate, what podcasts or Twitter feeds are good and oh, you should check these out. So you can instead of go down this rabbit hole themselves, so you might as well help kind of guide them. And I think just acknowledging that different forms of publishing should be you know, weighted the same in the same manner, not just obviously peer-reviewed articles. Yes, peer-reviewed books. Yes. But for students, it's like, are you going to assign a 400-page book that no one's going to read? I'd rather give a podcast episode where I think the students would be much more inclined to actually listen to it, have fun with it, be interested in the topic. If the purpose of, as a teacher is to educate and get students interested in these topics, assigning them a really boring reading is not the way to go about it. So I think we have to explore other options and be open to things. I couldn't agree more. I mean, there are, you know, a fair amount of really good historical podcasts for people who study the ancient world, but there's also a lot for like contemporary stuff. I mean, I can definitely say that as someone who's transitioned into like modern politics and and stuff these days, I would totally appreciate, you know, a professor assigning me like, oh, listen to the, uh, this episode of The Axe Files because he interviews yeah. this person on this contemporary like geopolitical issue instead of me just reading some big like home that is going to just make my arms mm-hmm. tired and me fall asleep. Yes. Like, let's be honest. Exactly. I don't know, to me, just like after having in this year and whatever of COVID, staring at my computer screen any more than I already have to and reading a PDF or something, I just like, can't bring myself to do it. But I can so easily listen to a podcast and clean my house, go on a walk. I think I retain the material better when I'm hearing it. Everyone has different learning styles and certain students, you know, if they have dyslexia or something like maybe reading isn't, readings aren't the best way of transferring this knowledge. The more podcasts, the better, more videos, the better. Yeah. Just more engaging stuff. Cause I mean, look, I like to read about whatever political thing I think if I could. I mean, we have this fixation, right? In American culture where it's like, we don't kind of slow down, relax and live. You know, it's always like, go, go, go. We've sort of built in this mindset or this is at least how I felt when I was finishing my undergrad was I would feel guilty if I was not at all times sitting. Like if I'm just reading a book, I'll be like, no, I have to do this. But then I'd also feel guilty because I'm like, I'm not like actively doing something. So I feel like I'm wasting my time, even though that's like completely irrational. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to. But there's something about if you have a different medium to intake the info and you can still feel productive. Yes. Yeah, if I can still, you know, do my laundry, if I can cook and meal mm-hmm. prep and listen to my thing. Yeah. It's just, it's more engaging. It's more fun. And then I don't sit there like on the couch, just feeling guilty, like, I need to do laundry. I need to do this. I need to do that. Oh, mm-hmm. I have to pick this up. Your oh, mind but wanders to, to all the other things. Yeah, exactly. I totally so. agree. The older I get too, I just have the harder time like sitting down and like focusing in on a text. I'm very much the same where it's if I can listen to something and get work done, I can kind of shut off my brain for a little bit. I can shut off my brain easier if I'm listening to it versus reading it. When we talk about accessibility, there's many different ways to be and make things accessible. And so, you know, this is something I'm really happy to see 
more people are noticing, more people are focusing on, because I think sometimes we get stuck in this, like if we talk about accessibility, you get into this very specific mindset about accessibility can only mm-hmm. mean like one thing. And I'm like, no, 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 yeah. it could be so many different ones. Better for everyone. It. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just going to put this one out here. You know, funding is the perpetual issue. The fact that we're still making our college kids buy or rent their textbooks for like $200 is ridiculous. So if you can assign something for free online, you save money. So then you're not also spending the money because funding people. Yes, 100%. I know sometimes students will be like, do I have to buy this book? Well, no, but it's like you can, but it's available on those totally legal websites that are online that cannot tell you to go to, but it's there. (laughs) Wink, wink. Exactly. Oh man. You know, funding is its own fun issue, which ugh, gross. You could, yeah. Uh, I don't even, yeah. That's a whole nother episode. That's a whole nother episode right there. Just on funding. Talk about my student loans for an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that I never will escape from. Yeah, those those pesky student loans and then those, you know, cash cow one-year master's programs, all those disgusting, horrific things that we force our young people to encounter or really consider, which is not okay. But, you know, hey, that's how we do things. Yeah, I'm looking but, at you, Biden. You could cancel all student debt. Hear me, President Biden. <laughs> taking notes over here. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, okay, I love where all of this is going. And now I'm really excited, though, as I always get when I have Egyptologists join me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you three really fun questions kind of to end the interview part of the, the show. One, did you attend office hours when you were either an undergrad or as a grad student? I was a bad undergrad and I never went to office hours. <laughs> I think mainly because I was just terrified of everyone (laughs) and very intimidated and shy. So I just like to sit in the back of the room and like take super thorough notes and I would just memorize everything and get, you know, A pluses on everything. Not until I think my like senior year, when I think I matured a little and was applying to grad school, that then I was like, maybe I should should talk to someone. But I still am very bad at asking for help, acknowledging that I need help and seeking seeking help from others I think I'm supposed to like somehow magically know how to do things alone and then if I ask for help that means you know I failed or something like this but that's my own personal problem but now I go to office hours all the time okay because okay, no. because you know I meet with Kara a lot we talk about things but I still get nervous when we have our meetings about my you know dissertation work it's still I still get nervous and go ah, I don't know what to tell her like I didn't get as much done as I planned on you know like you feel like you're like going to a parent teacher conference or something and you're gonna get in trouble but it's always super helpful and I always come out going oh why didn't I do that earlier I was putting that off for so long and I should have just had that meeting and I feel so much better and I do this to myself again and again and again it's okay. So attend office hours. (laughs) It's okay because I know entirely too many, actually the majority of all my friends in undergrad never set foot in office hours. I was, I always thought I was the weird one because I basically lived in my professors. Like actually I I would have slept there if they let me, but they didn't. (laughs) And, and thank God, actually they didn't let me. Okay. So you didn't go as an undergrad, which is totally fine. But now as a grad student, do you have a favorite conversation or memory or experience in office hours. I've had many conversations with Kara where I've had 
I'll get, I'll get personal here where I've had the, you know, like my own, you know, anxiety or hold up, you know, holding me back and, you know, imposter syndrome. I was like, what's the phrase? Like, you know, imposter syndrome of not feeling good enough or questioning your research or questioning how smart you are and if you can do this and all these types of things. So I've had many of those types of conversations with her and she's related her personal experiences of like, you know, we all have imposter syndrome. She still has it, even though she's Kara Cooney and we look at her and go, oh my gosh, Kara Cooney. And you know, you're so amazing on stuff, but she still gets nervous going onto that Nat Geo stage. And so I think that was, I think honestly, that was probably one of the things that stood out to me was when she was saying that she gets nervous before the first initial like Nachio and that she still gets a little nervous and still has doubts herself at points. And I think having these conversations with people who are so established in the field and seeing that not that they're just human too and have human emotions and stuff, but that they still feel the exact same way I do. And that for better or for worse, these things, you know, kind of stick with you and you have to learn to grow with them and figure out a way of dealing with them. So I appreciate one that I can be open and talk about mental health and all this thing. Both my advisors, Vilika Vendrick as well, I've been always very open about anxiety, my anxiety and stuff with her. And they're always usually really empathetic and understanding. And I think whenever, that's always a scary topic to broach with your superior. So I think whenever I've broach those topics, having them be very understanding and, you know, they share their personal anecdote where they felt a similar way. And then you feel, okay, I'm not alone in this and, and all this stuff. But yeah, I remember the one time Kara was like, oh yeah, I, I got, I get nervous before that Nat Geo, that big Nat Geo stage. And I was like, you still get nervous? You know, in my head, she like never gets nervous and no, has no problems with anything. I think that's really good to know, honestly, that, you know, you can feel safe as a grad student having those conversations with trusted advisors and professors or, you know, talk to them. They're, they're people too. I definitely had similar conversations about mental health and all the stresses, even in undergrad. And my professor was special. I loved her so much because she had the famous chocolate drawer. You just open the drawer and there's like 10 packages of different chocolates. And so whenever you go to her office, you know, you just like walk over to the drawer and she's just like, take a handful, take two, take three, whatever. And even if you, you know, weren't in her class, like if you come say hi, you could still get chocolates. That was a great incentive. Love that. Office hours with Kara tend to always take place at the faculty center on campus. Mm. So you get to go to the faculty center, which is like, ooh, the faculty center. Like I'm not normally allowed in here. You get like a yummy croissant and a cappuccino, or if it's a little later in the day, you can have a glass of wine and it's a fun office hours then. I'm so, jealous. Wait, here. I want to, yeah. I want to come to UCLA now just for the, just for the office hours. Are you kidding? Yeah. Sets new goal. Check. Okay. So the last question I really have for you is as a TA, you know, as someone who's taught yourself from the other side of the chair, what would you say to encourage students to come to office hours? Like if you were to pitch yourself, like, like why should they come talk to you? Why is it important? Yeah. I always, I actually really like when my students come to office hours, to talk to me about not class related things. And so when I'm, you know, in my first either lecture or video, since it's been COVID, I always encourage the students to come to office hours. And I try to espouse that I'm cool and chill 
so that they feel comfortable around me to come talk to me about anything. I feel like I'm very empathetic and lenient with like deadlines. Like if you need an extension, just let me know, like come talk to me at office hours. And so I hope that just my demeanor and all these things that I'm not like scary or out to get them and that I'm approachable, I think makes the students feel comfortable coming to office hours and chatting. And I think just, it's also the student's personality if they want to get to know you more. And I found that during COVID, since everything was online and the professors are always so busy that the TA was really the person that was getting the most interaction with the students. And so I had a lot of students sharing very personal things happening and really reaching out to you to be the kind of, you know, intermediary here. I always try to, you know, touch base with my students if suddenly they're not turning in stuff like, hey, what's up? How are you doing? Is everything okay? And I think just we're here to educate in the grand scheme of things, college classes aren't that important, right? So like other stuff comes first. So it's like making sure your students are happy and safe and healthy and putting these up front and that like, oh, we're going to learn stuff too, but like also feel free to if something comes up or you're having something else going on, like that will come first and we will make do and figure things out and make a game plan for getting through this and getting you through the course. And I hope that comes out to the students when I'm trying to explicate this in my videos or when I'm at discussion section, and then hopefully makes them feel more comfortable coming to chat. Okay. I wish you were my professor. Goodness me. I wish I had, I had great professors, but you know, that's just awesome. I think sometimes professors do that. I'm so busy. I don't have time for people. And it's like, even though I am super busy, I don't want to give off that air to students and make them think I don't like care about them or don't have time for them or something. Because teaching to me, at least, is very rewarding. It's like, yeah, I'm doing it because I get paid and that's how I live and pay for stuff. But it's like one of the main things that kind of keeps me sane is the teaching of it. So and I think for other people who are more into the research and to the all that stuff, maybe don't like the teaching, but I secretly hate writing. So... <laughs> I like the teaching more. Even if I'm super busy, I try not to take that out on the the students. Always tell them about my grad process. Like, ah, like when I was comping and doing my prospectus, I was like, oh my God, guys, I'm so... And then like the next week they would be like, oh, how was your exams? Or involve them in grad school and what it's like. And they were always super interested and they want to like hear about those things. So try to be just a real person. It's the time to put that personal touch on stuff because I I think we can easily get stuck in like we turn our classes into just the metaphor I'll make is like the sterile environment, right? Where Mm -hmm, you kind of go in, you do the thing, you're like a robot and then you leave and then you're like, okay, do work, turn it in, never see anyone (laughs) by. That personal flair really does make a difference. And I know it definitely made a difference for me in a lot of my classes with a lot of both professors and TAs. So a lot of great people that way. Wonderful. It really makes a difference. Okay. Awesome. I lied. And the real last section of the podcast is anyone who follows my show knows is that I ask every single guest at the end to read Percy Shelley's poem, Ozymandias. And I'm really excited to get your take on it as an Egyptologist, since this is like the most overtly Egyptian thing I've got but been to this oh good and this does not have to be the most erudite thing you've ever said but just after reading it if you just give us your you know quick thoughts on like you know what do you think the meaning of this poem is like what lesson should we take and why do we look at it and think of it as this really important message even now 
I feel like I'm gonna have a really morbid take on it. Let's beat it first. Okay. You'll do great. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. So my super morbid initial take is we all <laughs> die and decay and turn to dust. But <laughs> my maybe more scholarly interpretation, archaeologists, Egyptologists take is that they're looking at the statue from an antique time, from time, you know, long past and it's broken and you know, not in its best shape and it's a king and all this stuff, but it's the current people who are looking upon it that are making it live again. You know, if you're buying the whole kind of Egyptian idea that you need to say the person's name to make them, you know, flourish and live again in the afterlife is that these, all these objects that we hyper fixate on as archaeologists, as Egyptologists, are meaningless without their context in most cases, but also that like we are the ones imbuing them with this context again, and that there's this, I think, beautiful relationship that we can have 
with the past, it obviously can go a very negative, negative way if you're using it for, you know, the wrong agenda. But I think it can also be a very positive way that we can make these objects, give them stories and make them live again. Oh, that's a great one. That's a great one. And so anyone who has probably heard me wax eloquently about this poem, especially on the podcast, knows I also believe that this was a very much political statement by Shelley that Mm -hmm. could part of why it survives so long and we love it every generation that reads it because not only did it apply back then it's still very applicable now when I read this you know I think oh it's such a memento mori for humans a you know reminder that we will all die and that you know it talks about the very ephemeral nature of political power and power in general I mean this this king thought he was going to literally preside over the empire that lasted for eternity and the civilization is gone everything is crumbled Mm -hmm. you know we wouldn't even know about it unless it were for it was for the the little people the archaeologists who really put in the time to discover it again and so you know you can't do it alone and so it's just like it's a good check on human ego yeah look at me I have so mighty and despair and then the next line nothing beside remains exactly and so the last question I ask every single guest is if you just consider our contemporary society right now do we have a modern Ozymandias like is there something that we think is so great and amazing right now but like I used to say in like 100 years but that's being generous because like climate change could kill us all so I'm gonna be you know a little more flexible with my timeline but yeah let's let's go with 100 years will it still be the great amazing thing that we think it is are we gonna look back and just be like that was the stupidest most insane shit we've ever done like that like this is ridiculous two answers and they're somewhat related the bigger answer and it's not you know a tangible object but i'm gonna go with capitalism and then tangentially related to capitalism is all the bill space billionaires going to space and those types of things that i think many people currently view as a waste of money but I think in the future it will especially be viewed that way and I think yeah just capitalism I think so much so many of us are seeing that that's not a sustainable way to keep going globally and you brought up climate change and so many things are happening right now with these short-sighted goals that are you know making certain people a lot of money but you know long-term burning of fossil fuels like all these things are going to destroy everything and so yeah I'm gonna go with capitalism (laughs) Hopefully we can escape its clutches. Great answer. Just great answer. I love it when I get theoreticals. <laughs> you so. can tell I'm uh you can tell I'm Kara Cooney's advisee, I think. <laughs> You know, I think a lot of people, though, who have not been mentored by Kara Cooney would say capitalism as well. A few people on the show have actually said that. So you're in good company. You're in great company. Good Good job, everyone. Woo! Go us. Go go (laughs) us for being so on it with the the hot takes. I want to thank you again for joining me. You know, it's been such a, a pleasure and I get so excited when I get not only just amazingly smart people, but when I get friends on, I mean, it really just, it flows and it's so wonderful. And I love, you know, absorbing all the wisdom that you guys bring both to me and the show. I hope we can get you on in the future. I mean, now that you're yeah. also a fellow podcaster, come back on whenever you want, please. I would love that. And thank you so much for having me on. This was a great chat and I'm loving all your, your photos on Facebook. So keep, keep those up too. live vicariously through you. I will share all my Greece adventures. What I'm doing, go ahead and go for it. Love so. it. I have, I've not yet, you know, been to Greece. So need to do that. 
Well, I have not been to Egypt yet. So, you know, you could come visit me in Greece and then I'll take you around here and then we can pop down to Egypt together and then you can show me around Egypt. How's that? This sounds great. And then we don't need to hire tour guides. Exactly. Oh, I'm into it. Let's, let's get this planned, man. Let's do it. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 